But this morning I want to speak to you uh, on the subject of uh, fathers and uh, lessons from a father. Uh, This father is found in the Bible, but before we get to the actual text in Matthew chapter 1, I just want to uh, do a little introduction as far as the importance of being a father. Um, This morning we're going to talk about fathers, but like I said earlier, this message is really applicable to everybody here. Um, I really believe that, Dad, nobody is more important than you. I know a couple weeks ago we did a uh, Mother's Day message, and, and that was important too. But I, I really believe this. I believe that, that dads are the, the core, the key to the family unit. Um, every month, a little over 300,000 men enter into... Is this off? It's on. Enter into uh, fatherhood. Let me check this thing here. It's on. Test, 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 test. Well, I'll just talk real loud then. <laughs> um, every month, uh, over. 300,000 men enter into becoming fathers. Um, And they do that with little or no training. Um, I think that it's important that we understand the role of fathers in our houses and our homes today. I mean, moms are great and they're they're a key to having a a well-run home. But I also believe that fathers are very important to the household. Um, I read about a country doctor who was delivering the 10th baby of a couple, lived on a farm, and they had one kid per year. Pretty intense, a little overdone, I would say. Um, We need to pray for that mom. But after the the 10th child was delivered... They were sitting around the table, and they couldn't figure out a name. They just ran out of names. And so they were talking with the doctor, and they said, you know, do you have any ideas for a name? And uh, they said, we've, we've had so many kids in the last couple of years, we just run out. And the doctor thought for a second, took a, took a, a sip of his coffee and put it down, and he said, well, personally, I'd call it quits. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good advice for someone who's popped out 10 children in 10 years. Um, But every month, 300,000 men become fathers. And I really believe that today, fatherhood is a vanishing art form in our society today. It's it's something that men really don't uh, know how to do anymore. You can turn this down a little bit. And by the time you got it figured out how to be a father, you're out of a job. (laughs) You know, you do it for 18 years, and then that's it. Um, and I think there's a couple reasons, just a way to introduce our, our text today, that I believe fatherhood is, is in trouble in America. And so if you're a dad, I pray that you just tune into this, this, these couple words. I think, first of all, media has done a great job of belittling fathers. Every show you watch, usually the father is the bumbling idiot that can't do anything right, 
and mom comes in and saves the day. Now, that may be true in some cases, okay, but it's not true across the board. Um, And today in the media, dads are mocked and made fun of at every turn. And so, uh, as a consequence, fatherhood has been devalued in our culture. I think another reason is the woman's feminist movement has added to this problem. There are some, uh, one lady in in the woman's feminist movement said she described a man's role as this, uncertain, undefined, and perhaps unnecessary. Um, Gloria Steinman adds to that, and she said, a, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. In other words, you don't need them. Um, so fatherhood is in serious trouble today in our culture and in our, our society because media belittles it because the woman's feminist movement takes that. But I think also there's a third reason, and I think that's man's, our, our irresponsibility as fathers. Um, unfortunately, Men in our society today have been really lousy men. And I think that so many men put their personal interests above the interests of their children. And um, they'd rather watch football from the couch rather than play football with the kids in the, in the yard. Um, and that's because a lot of men are self-absorbed. Uh, they're self-serving. Um, after all, they've worked all day. They come home. They deserve a break. You know, they're the provider of the family usually. And, um, you know, women hear that, and they just probably want to puke. Um, But God has placed a tremendous responsibility on you as being a father. Tremendous responsibility. And it's squarely placed on your shoulders. You can't squirm out of this. Because nobody is more important in the family, I think, than dad. And if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, I just want to share this verse before we get to the text of our message because I think it speaks so aptly to fatherhood and the importance of what Paul is sharing here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. He's giving instructions to parents here. And he says, fathers, notice he doesn't say mothers, he says, fathers, do not uh, provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Do not exasperate, one translation reads, your children. Um, That's a, a direct, it's an emphatic command specifically to dads. He gives one negative thing, don't exasperate your children, but then he gives three positive things here. And I think it's, it's very easy to lay that responsibility at the feet of the women in the household. Um, women are happy to take that up, um, to do that. And a lot of times they do a, a better job than us men at it. But that doesn't negate the issue. God put that responsibility on us as men, to be fathers and to be dads and to do it in a responsible way. And so, dad, nobody is more important than you are in the household. Um, And when you look at the sociological evidence, just the facts, take the Bible and set it aside for a second and just look into studies that have been done. I just want to share a couple things with you this morning. These are non-biblical statistics. Fatherless daughters daughters without a father, are 53% more likely to get married as teenagers. They're 111% more likely to have children as teenagers if they don't have a dad. They're 164% more likely to have the birth of a child in illegitimate settings. 
They're 92% more likely to fail in their marriages when they don't have that father in their life. Dads, you're important. You're important to your family. You're important to your home. If you don't do the job right, dads, you could double the chance of your children not finishing school. And you walk out on your family. Fatherless children are 50% more likely to have learning disabilities. In fact, the chance of having a high achiever in your family, they're cut in half the day you walk out away from that family as a father. Fatherless children are 100 to 200% more likely to have emotional and behavioral problems, according to the National Center of Health Statistics. Fatherless young adults are twice as likely to need psychological help. In fact, the the nation's hospitals, over 80% of adolescents who are admitted for psychiatric reasons come from a fatherless home. That's a pretty strong indicator, secular statistics that show that fatherhood is important. When you look at the prisons and you look at those incarcerated Fatherless sons are 300 more percent likely to be in prison or incarcerated in state juvenile institutions. 70% of all the kids in state institutions come from fatherless homes. I mean, that's an that's a incredible statistic. Fatherless men are more likely, 35% more likely to have a, a marital failure when they get married. I mean, do you understand why God said he hates divorce? <laughs> That's what he clearly says in his word. That's not his plan. Now, I understand some of you have been through awful divorces, and it wasn't your idea, and it wasn't your plan. And you know what? Uh, you don't really have any choice in the matter. I understand that, and I'm not here to belittle you because of that. But I'm here to try to hold the standard high for any guys who are even thinking about walking out. And I pray there's nobody here this morning that has that in their mind, but you never know. First of all, there in Ephesians, he says, do not exasperate. Do not provoke them to anger. That's what that word means. It means to, to bring them to the point where they're actually hostile. They're angry in their heart. And you notice that the best person in the household to do that is not mom, but who? Dad. Because that's who he addresses. This is the first negative thing he says. He says, Father, don't provoke your kids to anger. And when we live in a society where children under the age of 18 are murdering one another at an alarming rate, you wonder what's going on. One thing that we understand about us men is that we really live in two worlds. As men, we live in two worlds. We live in what I call the positional world and we live in what I call the personal world. The positional world has to do with our work, with our job. The prestige, the authority, the titles, the degrees, everything else that that kind of tells a man that someone respects him, that it's important to him. That's the positional world that we live in. And as men, we're, we're motivated by that. We're driven by that. Driving the right car, signing with the right pen, carrying the right plastic and all kinds of other stuff, that adds to our egos. And we're just kind of wired toward that kind of mentality. 
I'm not saying it's wrong. That's just who we are. That's why men will pick up a book like In Search of Excellence or The 60-Second Manager or Power Negotiating or, or How to Swim with the Sharks. All those books, they, they appeal to a man who's in the, 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 the positional world, the work environment. How can they better themselves? But there's also the personal world of a man. And a lot of times we don't do very well in our personal world. We don't read too many touchy-feely books as men, usually. But I want to ask you the question. When your kids, when you get home from work at the end of a long day and you walk through the door, do your kids say, hey, dad's home! Or do they say, ha dad's home? That tells you right there whether or not you're doing your job as a dad. It's that personal world that will exasperate, has the potential to exasperate your children, to anger them. Um, because as men, we actually have to learn how to relate to people. I mean, we have men who are real social and men who are not. But for the most part, as men, we don't do too well in the relationship area. Women do a lot better. And so men aren't reading books like How to Be a Warm and Sensitive Husband or How to Be a Hero to Your Kids or What Women Wish Men Knew About Women. We, you know, okay, we, we've all kind of heard that stuff. Uh, those are girly books, you know, we don't go there. Uh, we'll just figure it out as we go. Um, and so we're object-oriented. We're task-oriented. I mean, from the time we were, we're little, we're growing up, we're putting things together, we're doing things like that. Um, women, on the other hand, are geared more to communication. Um, they do very well with language and things like that. Little boys are more object-oriented. I mean, you give the kid a stick, what's he do? He runs, you know, that's what he does. That's just the way we're geared. And so we have those two different worlds, the positional and the personal world, and we need to make sure that in the personal world, Dad, you're not exasperating your children, you're not provoking your children. But then he gives three quick kind of almost staccato commands. He says, first of all, bring them up. And that's our responsibility. It's not mom's responsibility. It's not the school's responsibility. It's not the church's responsibility, the youth group, or the, the children's ministry. Your child is nobody's problem but yours. Dad. That's what this verse says. Bring them up. He's laid that right at your, your feet. What's that mean, bring them up? Nurture them to maturity. It means... It's your responsibility to provide them with the basic necessities of life. It's your job. It's not the government's. It doesn't take a village. It takes a dad. To provide the food, the clothing, shelter, all of that. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's a powerful statement. But it's very important that we understand that we are tasked with the job of bringing up our children. And then it says, train them up. It's a second positive statement there. Train, it's used to describe the process of educating a child. To take them out of the child's world and into the adult's world. That's really what that means. 
It was training, and guess whose responsibility it is? It's dad's. Um, Be there not only to bring them up, but to provide the necessities of their life, but to train them up. It's talking about a child's position in the world, uh, to instruct them how to survive in this world. There's some basic things that we need to know as children if we're growing up, and it's the dad's job to provide that information. You know, you have to really lay aside all the nonsense you hear about quality time. I hear dads all the time say, well, I I spend quality time with my children. I mean, to be honest with you, quality time is a joke. I don't believe in quality time. You can't plan quality time. It's one of those things that just happens. But it will never happen if you really bring them up and you train them up. It won't happen unless you spend time with them and instruct them. Instruct your kids. Don't exasperate your children. Bring them up. Train them up. Instruction. Instruction. You know what that deals with? It's kind of interesting. It deals with the child's will. It deals with his feelings. Not his intellect. I've met a lot of parents who are really concerned about their kids' intellect. But they don't really care at all about their feelings. And they come across as very harsh and very demanding and very, you know, just uh, just not considering the child's feelings at all. And God has placed that responsibility on us men to develop, develop our own child's personal world. And nobody can do it better than you, Dad. There's two simple principles. It's this, less time, less influence. Less time, less influence. Greater distance between you and your child, the greater the margin of error. Less time, less influence. The greater distance between you and your child, the greater margin of error. We're to bring them up, to train them up, to instruct them. Mom can't do it alone. God gave you the honor and and really the distinction, the blessing of having that part in your family. And when I started thinking about Father's Day, you know, sometimes it's hard to year in and year out. Sometimes we don't even preach a Father's Day message here. We just kind of go on with whatever we're going. But I thought this year we'd, we'd attempt one. And I thought, you know, the one father in all of Scripture that I could think of is found in Matthew chapter 1. And that's our text for this morning. Matthew chapter 1, I thought of all the dads in Scripture, I mean, I think Joseph is the one I kind of want to get to know a little bit about. Um, I mean, if God decided to send his son to earth again today to be born as a baby, and if he was looking for a suitable home where the child would be properly raised... Would yours be on the list, Dad? Good question. Consider only the, the spiritual, the moral, and the relationship qualities that God would look, look for in that. I mean, from the human side, a couple could prepare the Savior for his ministry. But would your home qualify? I mean, why did God pick Joseph and Mary to to have the Son of God be born into that family and to be raised by them? Um, Why did he pick them? 
I mean, we would have thought that he would have picked somebody of prominence, maybe a priest or a rabbi or a prophet or a ruler of the country or something like that. Um, obviously, he would want his only son to be cared for, be well taken care of. So maybe he would have picked a, a family that was comfortable financially, that could take care of his only son. And since his son would need a first-rate education, I'm sure maybe he would consider picking a well-educated couple, a family that has their, their minds set on education and, and uh, instilling that information into their children. Because usually it's the best schools, the best opportunities for meeting the right people and having proper social upbringing that occurs. But God didn't do it that way. He didn't do it that way. He picked some obscure couple, unknown in the religious and the social circles of Jerusalem. Nobody knew these people. The man was not a ruler. He wasn't even a rabbi. The Bible tells us that he was a carpenter of no notoriety at all. Now, we know that this couple was poor because they offered a poor man's sacrifice at Jesus' birth, which was a pair of turtle doves or pigeons, Luke 2.24. As far as we know, they weren't really well-educated. We don't know that much about them, but they were common, working people living in this small, out-of-the-way village of Nazareth in the northern part of Israel known as Galilee. So this morning we're looking at Dad, so we're going to look at Joseph. And we're going to ask ourselves, why did God pick him out of all the other men in Israel for the incredible responsibility of raising his own son, the incarnate Son of God? Let's look at our text, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And just follow along as I read Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before They came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, a lot, not very much is written about Joseph in, in the Bible, uh, but there's, there's some pieces here that we're going to put together this morning. Um, I think the one thing I want you to get this morning, men, is that godly fathers are men of two things, conviction and compassion. Conviction and compassion. Those are two elements of being a godly father. And so... As I said earlier, we're focusing on fathers, but really that applies to all of us, right? As Christians, we all need to be people of conviction. We all need to be people of compassion. 
And so the first point in the outline there, godly fathers are men of conviction. Well, Joseph shows us four areas of his life where he held to be a man of biblical conviction. You know, as Christians, that's what we're concerned about here. We want to be hold ourselves to the convictions of Scripture, what it teaches. And the first thing, men, are, men of conviction have moral integrity. Look at what it says in verse 19. It says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man or a righteous man, is a good translation. He had moral integrity. That, that goes a long way. He follows God's moral law. He didn't do his own thing. He didn't believe in situational ethics. He didn't say, well, you know, the guys at work, they're not going to understand my Christian values, so I'm going to become somebody else and play their little game at work. And if I compromise, uh, you know, as long as people in the church don't find out about it, I'll be okay. (laughs) See, that's how we buy into that. No, he followed God's moral law. He didn't believe in situational ethics. He didn't believe in bending God's law to fit his situation. Even though, at times, it's very painful and frustrating to be obedient. He still did it. He obeyed God's word. And in this situation, it was painful. The reason it was painful, it tells us that Joseph loved Mary. I mean, he was going to marry this girl. They were engaged to be married. Do you remember when you were engaged to be married? Just the other day, my wife and I had a conversation about you know, what it was like before we were married and what it's like after we're married. <laughs> a little different. It's just a little different. I'm just being honest. But you can recall those feelings when you were dating your spouse-to-be. It's a unique, unique time in life when you, when you go through that phase of life. As you look forward to living life together with men, as the, you look forward to living life together with the woman you love. See, back then they had little different customs than ours. Um, we'd be mistaken if we thought that Joseph was not caught up with the same feelings he was. He was in love with his bride-to-be. He had that butterflies in the stomach when he saw Mary. Maybe his hands began to sweat a little. Voice got a little squeaky. See, according to Jewish custom, the engagement period lasted about a year before the marriage was consummated. But that period, it was taken very seriously. Much more seriously, I have to say, than our engagement periods are taken today. You have to understand, the couple could not terminate the engagement except by a bill of divorce, even though they weren't married yet. That's how serious it was. And any breach of faithfulness, faithfulness, any breach of that, was viewed as adultery. Even the smallest thing. So they were committed just as we are in our marriages after the wedding ceremony. They were just as committed before in the engagement period. And then in that context, think about it. Here's Joseph. He's in love with this lady. They're engaged to be married. And he discovers that she's pregnant. Not a small matter. And he knew that he wasn't the father. 
Now, the Jews aren't expecting a virgin birth of the Messiah at this point. So they're not, you know, they don't put this together. And Mary's condition was, was due to an unexpected, miraculous working of God. The Bible says that, that, that God miraculously uh, caused Mary to be pregnant with this Son of God. And so Joseph's only conclusion, because he wasn't thinking that, that way, he thought, wow, this, this lady that I love, that I'm engaged to be married to, has been unfaithful to me. She, she slept with another man. And I'm sure that pained him deeply, as it would anybody. Because he knew that God took Mary seriously, and he wanted God's moral purity. And since he hadn't consummated the marriage yet, and since he wanted a morally pure wife to raise his children, he decided, like most people probably would, say, you know, I'm going to break this off. This gal isn't who I thought she was. Joseph held God's moral law in the highest regard, even above his own feelings. He didn't just shrug his shoulders and say, oh, that'll be all right, we'll work it out. No. He wanted to do what's right before the eyes of the Lord. See, it's easy to have moral convictions until a situation comes up that causes you a lot of pain or grief. <laughs> See, when that happens, when you start feeling pain or grief from your, your, your moral commitment or your convictions, then all of a sudden that's when you begin to want to compromise. It's easy to bend those convictions to fit whatever you want rather than what God wants in those situations because we live in a day of really relative morality. Hey, if you don't hurt anybody, you know, it doesn't matter. We live in that kind of an age today. And you can bend God's word and, and whatever to fit our lifestyle, and, and we do that all the time. People do it all the time. It doesn't make it right. And what happens is you begin to kind of bend to that in small ways, and you get used to it. Remember in college when I was in Southern California, I had a, a small little job painting um, rooms at the, at the college. And I remember I was in there for weeks painting these rooms and before the school started and the school semester started and, and I was sitting in the classroom and the teacher who was teaching the class said, wow, does everybody smell that? <laughs> I didn't smell a thing. I was sitting there like, what's he talking about? Because I'd been smelling it for weeks, the fresh paint. I mean, everybody else is like, oh, we got a headache. Oh, we can't meet in here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? See, what happened? I, I got conditioned to it. See, and that's what happens sometimes when we begin to bend, when we begin to yield, when we begin, we begin to kind of bend our convictions in certain areas and compromise. It, it becomes easier the next time, and it becomes easier the next time. And pretty soon, before we know it, it's affecting us morally. But to be godly fathers, righteous men like Joseph, we need to hold strongly to the moral standards that God gives us in his word. Secondly, men of conviction fear God more than public opinion. They fear God more than public opinion. Think about it. The angel explained to Joseph the unique circumstances of Mary's conception. He didn't explain to everybody. He just explained to Joseph. Joseph's the only one that knew at this point. And Joseph went ahead and he actually took Mary... As his wife, it says. Nobody else knew what was going on. It took a lot of courage. That's why the angel said, do not be afraid. <laughs> I'm going to tell you to do something, but don't be afraid about it. I want you to do it. 
I mean, back then especially, their culture was not tolerant of anyone having a baby out of wedlock. It was just, man, if you did that, it was big trouble. And here, Mary's pregnancy before marriage would have been really a trigger for a lot of people to condemn her and Joseph. I mean, I'm sure the gossip started. Did you hear she got pregnant before they even got married? And some say he's not even the father. I mean, all these people were whispering and saying these things. And for Joseph to stand with Mary, he had to fear God more than he feared the opinions of others. To raise his son, God picked a dad who feared God enough to stand with God against public opinion. And your kids need that in a father. They really do. Even if they complain, Dad, everybody else is doing it. Why can't we do it? Well, son, we can't do it because here's what God's word says. And we're not going to violate God's word. Thirdly, men of conviction develop a habit of obedience. We see this in Joseph's life. If you look at verse 24, it says, When when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And then you look down at chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. It says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise and take your child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Over and over again, you see here Joseph's immediate obedience. He was in the habit of obeying God. Every time God commanded him to do something, Joseph responded almost with an instant, unquestioning obedience. And that was a pattern of his life, to obey God, even when it wasn't convenient. I mean, think about it. Wakes up and the angel says, flee to Egypt. You'll stay there till I tell you. What? You want me to move to Egypt? I mean, are you sure this is a foreign country, Lord? Um, They speak another language. And you want me to go right now in the middle of the night, move the family, all that stuff? It may have been a hassle, but none of these commands were all that Big of a deal, you may be thinking. Well, take Mary as your wife, move to Egypt, move back to Palestine, move to Galilee. Those are big decisions. You don't just make those on a spur of a moment. But Joseph was being obedient because he had a habit of obeying God in his life. Even the mundane matters of life, he was willing to do. So, Dad, what happens when you're checking out at Walmart and the lady overlooks the Soap detergent at the bottom of the, the cart. And you get out to the car and you realize, wow, she didn't ring me up for that. Do you do a high five with your family? Bah, free soap today. Saved us 20 bucks. What's that telling your kids? Well, because you're a man of conviction, do you head back in, even though it's not convenient, takes a little more time, it costs you more money, and go to the checkout clerk and say, hey, you know what? You made a mistake here and I owe you some money. What's that showing your, your children? What's, showing, what's that showing your kids? Well, men of conviction also develop godly habits of worship. In Luke chapter 2, verse 22, 
Look at what it says. Luke 2, 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah, Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the distance to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Um, actually, I meant Luke. I'm sorry, Luke 2, 24. I, I was reading Matthew. I'm like, how does this apply to this? <laughs> it's been a long week. <laughs> I'm sure I could apply it somehow, but let's, let's be honest here and just uh, bail out on this verse and we'll go to the, the right one. Um, Luke chapter 2, 22. And when it was time for them, the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So here we see that they're they're willing to go to this temple to dedicate their son at the temple. And all the way down in verse 41, we learn that they had this custom of going to Jerusalem every year for the Feast of the Passover. Over in Luke chapter uh, 4, verse 16, we discover that Jesus had the same custom of weekly uh, synagogue worship. Um, I mean, where do you think Jesus learned these from? He learned it from his dad. He learned it from his family. And every family has certain habits. We have certain customs. Some develop almost unaware. We don't even realize it. And some are by repetition. They're, they're, they're meant to be uh, customs. Deliberately, you set them out to be part of your regular family life. Hey, we're going to eat together as a family. We're going to do this. We're going to have family devotions, whatever it is. But once in place... You don't have to debate whether or not every time you're going to do this that you have to do it. Because in your family, it's just something that you do. It becomes a habit. It becomes something that's regular. And see, Joseph and Mary had the custom of worshiping God as a regular part of their life, just as God commands them. They had a habit of regular church attendance. It wasn't up for grabs. It didn't matter whether Johnny had a Little League game Sunday morning. It doesn't matter. Johnny wouldn't be playing Little League if it was on Sunday morning. See? Uh, see, it's when we, we begin to kind of bend and we begin to yield to the pressure of the world, then all of a sudden we find ourselves competing for times with when we should be worshiping with God's people on the Lord's Day. And it doesn't happen like that. It happens over a period of time. I was talking to a police officer this last, year, this last week, and I was talking to him about this. Um, shooting they had, this, the drill they had last Sunday. And I said, did anybody ever think to just contact the churches in the area to see if maybe you know, Sunday morning would be a, a bad time to do something like this? And is, you know what his answer was? Well, we contacted the Little League people for about a Saturday drill, and they were up in arms. And so we figured the church really wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> it wouldn't, they wouldn't care. And I thought, well, you still should have asked. Um, you know, I mean, hey, I don't begrudge them having an activity, you know, a, a drill. They got to do it. That's fine. You know, but I'm just saying the fact that they just thought, ah, you know, they won't say anything. Um, 
it just shows you the priority. And, and see, a lot of times in our own lives, you know, when we make church attendance an option, maybe you're, you're away, maybe you're on vacation as a family. Do you go to church? That's a good question. I mean, I, I know a lot of families, we're on vacation. You wouldn't expect us to go to church on vacation. Why not? I mean, whenever I go on vacation, I try to look for a place to go to church because I don't get to go to a lot of churches other times. But it's kind of an adventure. It's like, what am I going to see? What am I going to hear? What am I going to, you know, how do they do things? Um, you know, and I appreciate so much when some of you go away on vacation, you bring back and you bring back the, the folder, the, the bulletin. They'll say, hey, here, the church, we visited this church. You might want to check it out. It's kind of cool. That's great. That, that tells me that, man, this isn't just a, a Sunday while you're here thing. It's, it's no matter where you're at in the world, you can find a church and you can worship together. And if you can't, by some means, at least get your family together and spend some time in the scriptures and pray and, and, and maybe sing a chorus or two or a hymn and have that time of family worship. It's so, so important. And so the, the same goes true for family Bible reading or prayer, whatever, not just church attendance. But is it something that you're... You're, you're willing to commit to? Is it something that's a, it's a habit in your family's uh, everyday lifestyle? Sometimes, you know, I hear people, you know, that maybe they haven't been in church for a couple, well, I just need a couple weeks off. And I'm thinking, what example are you giving your children or whoever else is in your family? That's, that's so sad. Um, they figure out your weekly priorities very quickly kids aren't dumb they can they can read right through all the the christian speak and see right to your heart almost to see well what's what's dad really like or what's mom really like and so when god chose a man to raise his son he picked a man of conviction through his moral integrity he picked a man who feared god he picked a man who had a habit of obedience had a habit of uh worship in his life But when you think of those things, you might conjure up in your mind a man who is only marked by conviction. Maybe some of you have had dads that, you know, when I mentioned a man of conviction, you kind of bristled, thinking, you know, oh, bristled kind of thing. Wow, yeah, I don't want a man of conviction in my life because they were stern. They were just matter of fact. They were cold. They didn't treat me correctly. See, a person like that might make a great military officer, but they miss the mark when it comes to being a godly father because you not only need conviction as a father, but you also need, and it brings us to the second point here, godly fathers are men of what? Compassion. Compassion. I mean, where do you think Jesus developed his tender love for children? Why do you think on that day when the, the children were just running toward him and the disciples were trying to figure out how to get rid of these kids, Jesus said, oh, no, no, let them come on to me. What are you talking about? Why do you think he had that compassion? Why do you think he had time for people who were trying to track him down in the streets when he was going around with his disciples and they were grabbing at him, asking him to heal him, and the disciples were kind of saying, we don't have time for these people. Jesus was like, no, these are the people I came for. I came for the downtrodden. Why do you think he had compassion for those who were like sheep without a shepherd? Where did that come from? I think he saw it in the life of his father. And his father probably wasn't around that that long. We don't know much about Joseph, but the time he must have spent with Jesus must have had a pretty good impact on his 
human development because we know that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. And Joseph helped with that. And so he, he understood what it meant to be a man of compassion. And there's two clues here in Matthew's Gospel, back to Matthew, that show us about the compassion of Joseph. And like I said, this applies to all of us. I mean, I know a lot of Christians who are just very um, people of conviction. And so they become very legalistic. They become very cold-hearted toward those who are not Christians. They become very just, you know, almost self-righteous people. And they look down on everybody who's not part of their church or part of their little club or whatever. That doesn't please God. I mean, you can have conviction. That's fine. But we don't put our Christian conviction on everybody else because they may not be Christians. How can you hold them to the same standard? You can't. Godly fathers are men of compassion. A compassionate men are considerate of others. That's the first thing. Notice when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant, he had basically two options according to the customs of the day. He could institute a lawsuit against Mary for her unfaithfulness, and that would have been the right thing to do. Nobody would have looked down on Joseph for doing that. Although the letter of the law prescribed stoning, in other words, it said she should be stoned, Joseph probably figured out, yeah, that penalty probably is not going to be enforced because it generally wasn't only in, in certain cases. But a lawsuit could have exposed Mary to what? Public disgrace. Think about it. To ridicule. He could have done that or he could have just handed her a bill of divorce and said, you know what, I can't go along with this marriage. I can't go along with this engagement. Uh, I think that you were unfaithful to me and I'm going to dismiss you privately, without public fanfare. And what did he do? He chose the latter. He didn't make a big deal out of it. He chose the latter because he didn't want to disgrace Mary, because he loved Mary. Even though he was in pain, and even though he thought at this point that Mary was responsible for his pain because she's been unfaithful in his mind, see, he didn't want to get even with her. He didn't want to make her pay. As a godly dad, you need to think about how your own actions make your children feel. You may be right in thinking that your child needs discipline. But maybe it's not always the right thing to correct them publicly in front of everybody else and disgrace them and shame them. Maybe he's done something that embarrasses you. Maybe your child's done something that makes you look bad. How does a godly dad deal with that? Judge your own pride. You absorb the embarrassment. You deal with the matter privately. Because he's considerate of that child. Even though the child's done something wrong. You're considerate of that individual. Secondly, compassionate men have tender feelings for others. (laughs) This sounds like a oxymoron, tender feelings in men. I mean, it just just does. Um, It's interesting, in verse 20 of chapter 1 in Matthew, there's a lot of different translations here, but they really tone down the original intent 
of Matthew 120 where it says, Joseph considered or thought about these things. Because the Greek word there has a nuance of emotional reasoning. Um, in some places it's used to describe angry or, or passionate reasoning. Uh, you see, Joseph wasn't just sitting down and, and, and calmly weighing his options. Well, I can give her a bill of divorce, I can do this. No, it, it hit him to the utter core of his heart. I mean, he was distraught. He was in turmoil as he tried to figure out what to do. And he loved Mary so deeply, he wanted to follow God so fully, he had to consider all these things. Leonard Griffith says this, he imagines Joseph is saying, oh, the agony, the tortured days and sleepless nights. I mean, think about it. You're engaged to be married to this woman. She, she turns up pregnant and you're not the father. And you've got to sort all this stuff out. He goes on, my life was finished. I could never love anyone else but Mary. Nazareth was empty and my heart was empty without her. Why, oh God, did you let this happen? I prayed over and over again. I'm sure that's what went through Joseph's heart. But he wasn't just a stern moralist. He was a considerate man with deep feelings about the one he loved deeply. Biblical love is primarily a commitment. It's not feelings. Do we understand that? It's not devoid of feelings, but it's not just about feelings. I can't count the number of people I've talked to over the years when they're struggling and they say, well, why, why do you want to separate? Why do you want to divorce? Well, we just don't love each other anymore. We don't feel we love each other. What? Usually I say, I don't care how you feel. Well, what's that have to do with it? Did you not stand before God and someone and, and a pastor or a priest or somebody and say, I commit to this other person to death do his part? Yeah, but we just don't feel that. <laughs> Wait, you got to separate things here. Biblical love is primarily a commitment. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. Paul even compares his own love for his converts as being a tender love of a nursing mother. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, he says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Have you ever seen a nursing mother? Of course you have, because we have a lot here. But we've had a lot over the years. So, I mean, you know, but what do they do? You know, they, they're, they're, they're holding that baby. They're cradling that baby. They're not just, here, you know, hurry up, you know. I'm gonna get no, you don't do that. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be right. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, he says, so, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Paul was willing to sacrifice himself so that they could hear the gospel because you had become very dear to, to us. Dads, let me, let me hear this carefully. Listen to what I'm about to say because it's very important. Almost as important as what you teach your children is how you communicate it. Almost as important as what you teach your children is how it's communicated to them. 
God not only gave us heads to understand, but he also gave us hearts to feel. And sometimes we need to be considerate of that other person, whatever it might be. Your kids probably won't grow up and remember all the the doctrine you're teaching them, or at least not as their own, maybe convictions, maybe they'll grow up and, and have their own, whatever, study the Bible on their own, hopefully. But hopefully they'll they'll remember the compassion, the care that you had for them. Well, how do you communicate your convictions? How do you communicate your compassion to your kids? Well, first of all, you have to model it. You have to model it. You can't tell them one thing and do another. That, that, that's just not going to work. You have to model it for them. You have to be who you are in Christ and let them know when you fail and be honest and open, be transparent. You also have to teach them. You have to teach them verbally by reading them the Bible, by talking about God's ways, talking about Scripture, talking about the law of God. Take times to do that. Don't just leave that up to mom all the time. As a father, that's your role. That's your responsibility. But I think the last thing is important. You have to spend time together. You have to spend time together. I mean, how do we know that Joseph spent time with Jesus as he was growing up? I think you can put two verses together in Matthew and figure this out. Matthew thirteen fifty five, and there it describes Jesus as the carpenter's son. So what does that tell you? When they saw the carpenter, they saw his son. <laughs> and also Mark chapter 6, verse 3, which describes Jesus as the carpenter. He followed in his father's footsteps. How did Jesus learn the trade of carpentry? By spending time with his dad, by spending time with Joseph. As they worked together, as they ate together, Joseph probably modeled, he talked with Jesus about the things of God. Even though Jesus was God, he was still human. Remember that. He needed to grow in wisdom and stature. And godly values are communicated to your kids by modeling by talking in the context of spending time together with them. And that's so important that we do that. Because if you don't, it's it's very hard to get any relationship, any communication going with your kids. There was a little write-up about grandmothers. Um... And you can relate it to grandfathers if you want, but it it kind of speaks to what I just said. A grandmother is a lady who has no children of her own. (laughs) She likes other people's little girls and boys. A grandfather is a man-grandmother. These are kids saying this. He goes for walks with the boys, and they talk about fishing and stuff like that. Grandmothers don't have anything to do except be there. They're so old, they shouldn't play hard or run. It's enough if they drive us to the market where the pretend horse is and have a lot of dimes ready. Or if they take us for walks. They should slow down past things like pretty leaves and caterpillars. They should never say hurry up. Usually, grandmothers are fat, but not too fat to tie your shoes. They wear glasses and funny underwear. They can take their teeth and their gums off. Grandmothers don't have to be smart, only answer questions like, why isn't God married? Or, how come the dogs chase the cats? 
Grandmothers don't talk baby talk like visitors do because it's hard to understand. When they read to us, they don't skip or mind it if it's the same story over and over again. Everybody should try to have a grandmother, especially if you don't have television. (laughs) Because they're the only grown-ups who have time. You can relate that to grandfathers as well. See, Joseph was not rich. He wasn't successful in business. He wasn't well-known. He wasn't well-educated. You know what? If he never would have become the father of Jesus, we never would have heard of this guy. Ever. He was the carpenter who walked with God, who developed godly conviction, who communicated them with tender compassion in the context of time spent together with this unique son that he had, the son of God that was given to him for his care. Convictions without compassion creates distance in relationships. Compassion without convictions means weakness with regard to the truth and will cause your kids to lose respect for you and for God. But when you put those two together, convictions and compassion, when you put them together, guys, you combine them together over the years, you have a description of a man of God who chose, that God chose to raise his own son. And I think you're in pretty good company. He was a dad that we can learn from. Not just, I think, at Christmas time when we hear about the Christmas story, but he was truly a dad for all seasons. I pray that you'll spend time with your kids, that you'll be men of conviction and compassion. Ask God to help you with that. None of us are perfect. Just ask our wives. They know that clearly. But take time to spend with your kids. Um, I told this story once before, but I just want to close with this. There was four men who went fishing in Alaska. There's three men and a little boy. And they flew in on a, a seaplane. And uh, this one man, Dr. Phil Littleford, and his son had the time of their life. They, they went fishing and, and uh, caught fish, did all this stuff. And while they were upstream fishing, the tide went out. It was kind of a bizarre tide. It dropped 24 feet that day. And when they got back to the plane, it was beached. So they stayed the night. And the next morning, the tide was back and the plane was floating. And they thought, okay, let's go. And they took off, and one of the pontoons was punctured. They didn't know it at the time. It was full of water. And as they began to try to fly out of the bay, before they could really get any airspeed up and get out of the water, the plane careened off sideways. It flipped over and upside down. And Dr. Phil and his, his boy and the other the other. Uh, two, two gentlemen there, they quickly assessed everything. Everybody seemed okay, but they didn't have any life preservers or flares. And the plane began to sink. And so Dr. Phil, being a Christian man, he fired off a quick prayer. And he said, let's swim for it. That's the only option. And all four went into this icy, frigid water in Alaska. Two men swam against the the riptide that was there, and they made it ashore. Barely, but they made it. But the 12-year-old boy, he just couldn't keep up the current. He couldn't continue to swim anymore. And the story says that he swam until he was exhausted. And his father had to make a decision to go ahead 
and make it to shore? Or to allow and allow his boy to die alone there in the cold water? Or to stay with his boy? And being the dad that he was, you know what he did. He swam to his son. He took his boy in his arms. And the last time they saw the other two, two men saw them, they were just being swept out to sea. Would you do that for your son? All of us would probably say yes, definitely. See, my question in closing is this. Why in the world, as dads, are we willing to readily die for our sons? And yet, we're unwilling to live for them each and every day. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray for our dads. We pray for the families represented here this morning. We pray for those even that aren't here this morning, Lord. Vacation or traveling, whatever it might be. Lord, I thank you that you gave us the example of Joseph as being a father who held on to godly principles and moral convictions and yet was also a man of compassion and was willing to be considerate of others and their feelings. Lord, we, as men, we need to learn from this man. And Lord, I pray that, um, Lord, if we're... We're fledgling in our fatherly duties as men. Lord, that you will build us up, that you will encourage us, that you will exhort us, that we will rely on your Holy Spirit that lives within us to do what a godly man would do. And Father, that we would be the example and the encouragement that our kids need to see on a daily basis. It's not easy. Most men work a full day job and they come home and deal with the children and encourage the wife and I mean it's 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 a hard job but Lord that's what you've given to us you've put it squarely on our shoulders and Father I pray that we would be faithful to fulfill the task as dads um, both in our positional world that we provide for our families but also in our personal world where they say see us when nobody else sees us that we would be faithful to your word, that we would strive to do the best we can, that we strive to be filled with your spirit, not controlled by the flesh on a daily basis. And Lord, we thank you for your grace because none of us are perfect. We all blow it over and over again. We thank you for our wives who love us in spite of ourselves sometimes and our kids who continue to come back and, and, and love us even when sometimes we show them anger or, or other things that are dishonoring. But Lord, we, you've called us to this task of being dads. And Lord, we pray that we'd fulfill it with all of our hearts, not for our own glory, but for your glory. And Lord, we pray for each family here represented that you would protect them, that you would build them up, that you would uh, continue to uh, build them into a family that will uh, be able to shine the light of the gospel in their community, whether it's at work or whether it's where they live, that others may be drawn to the Savior. Lord, we thank you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that first of all they would understand that they're a sinner, that nobody's perfect. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And Lord, we all need our sins to be dealt with. And Father, we thank you that you sent your only Son to die on a cross for our sins. And when we put our faith and our trust in that sacrifice, you forgive us and you do so justly. 
and your righteous anger against us is turned away. It's shielded by the blood of Christ, by the sacrifice of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that any here this morning would, would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me this way of salvation this man speaks about. Help me to put my trust in you and in your son. And, Father, we, we pray that you would do that work in each heart. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.